The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Greetings and welcome to the Women in Fire radio show. Today we'll be talking about the unhoused or homeless and the effect it has on fire department and their fire department responses. Thank you to Fire Engineering for allowing Women in Fire to be part of their radio show series. I'm Lisa Baker, the Southwest Region Trustee. Today I have um, Operations Chief Heather Mosdine from the Fremont, California Fire Department. I have recently retired Lieutenant Heidi Simon from South Metro, which is in the Denver, Colorado area. And I have retired Lieutenant Willie Ace Salisbury, who is from retired from Gainesville, Florida. And now he's um, works for the Florida State Fire Marshal. So despite the nationwide gains in the past 10 years and a steady falling unemployment rate, homelessness or unhoused remains a significant problem in many cities and communities. The last two years, homelessness has seen a steady increase. With homelessness or unhoused comes homeless encampments, which require more sophisticated because they work like small cities. It's estimated that about 45% of all homeless or unhoused have some form of mental illness. So there's more than a half million homelessness people in the United States. And like I just mentioned, many who include who deal with mental illness, drug addiction, and other problems. At homeless shelters, where some of them some of them are housed, attention to fire prevention may take a back seat to other concerns, such as adding capacity. More troubling are fire hazards at makeshift housing sites and homeless encampments. Fire calls to homeless encampments run the gamut, including many to the same types of emergencies as other calls. Because homeless people often use fire for cooking or warmth, there are brush fires or abandoned buildings or in abandoned buildings which can cause a wildland fire or the, the abandoned building to catch fire. So, so um, as we know, any large city, especially the large cities, has seen a tremendous amount of unhoused or homelessness in the past few years, so, so much so that they're calling some cities unsafe to visit. Um, on the operations side, how has this made an impact on responses? Um, any type of response, like a fire response, EMS. I'm sure EMS responses have gone drastically up. I can take the first stab at that, uh, Chief Baker. Um, so I, I'm i pretty new to Fremont. I've been there for about nine months, but prior to that, I did 19 years in Oakland. And so I can sort of speak to how the trajectory of calls changed kind of over my career in Oakland. Um, I think when we first started, we it was very rare that we would go to a tent on fire or an RV on fire. Um, and then, 
you know, when I left Oakland, it was such a common occurrence to go to buses on fires or vehicles that that persons were living in or RVs on fires and certainly encampment fires. So the the call volume for fires that were outside, you know, outside in nature um, increased significantly. And then, yeah, to your point, I think medical call volume, I, I wouldn't say the call volume increased per se, but the locations of those calls definitely changed. So um, we definitely saw a lot more um, calls to people who are living on on the streets in in any kind of either vehicle or tent, um, large encampments, a lot more, um, a lot more calls for services there as those encampments grew. Ace or Heidi, do you have anything to add? Yeah, Lisa, I can um, speak to the EMS side of things. Um, the EMS impact continues to grow, and I couldn't say percentage-wise um, or per capita um, what it was 10 years ago versus now, but um, with the substantial number and substantial increase in homeless, um, particularly in Colorado area, I can speak to, um, our EMS calls have increased substantially, um, not just because of the mental health concerns, but also um, the drug use concerns. And in Colorado, um, they think about 30 to 40% of our homeless, excuse me, about 45% of our homeless are using um, some sort of substance abuse. And um, unfortunately, with we're all seeing the influx of the fentanyl-tainted drugs, um, that has increased our call volumes as well, and then the significance of those. Um, and as Heather was saying, with with the encampments in themselves, the the complexity of running those calls in that area, um, we can talk about that more in a little bit, but I think that is making a pretty big impact on our crews and um, a strain on the assistance that we might need with from police um, to protect ourselves in those situations. Um, we have had an interesting is on the fire side, some we have we call them the tunnel rats, which probably not the greatest name. Um, but a lot of people that will shelter in the tunnels, because in Colorado in the winter, it gets really cold. And unfortunately, concrete is not warmer, but it is a great place to start a fire to keep warm. And so we have had a lot of fires in tunnels. Um, which create a significant risk to us, not just because of exposure to the toxins of the products that they're burning, but also just being in that confined, it becomes a confined space issue. Um, and then when you go back to what I was speaking of earlier with the drug use, um, we have to be considered concerned with getting exposed in that manner as well. So not necessarily typically fight, fighting the fire the same way that we would typically if it was a cleaner environment. Heather, wasn't there a fire? I don't know where it was. It was somewhere in the um, East Bay, I, I believe, where they got under, actually got underneath the underpass and were living under underneath the underpass, not on the ground area, but actually got inside the underpass. So like how Heather, I mean, so how Heidi is referring to um, tunnel fires, there was an issue where they, and it became a, find space entry. Yeah, I think that that's pretty, it's pretty prominent. Um, you know, unsheltered 
the unsheltered population, they're looking for places where they can stay dry or warm. Um, you know, in California, it's not really a problem with snow, but but it is certainly with rain. And so they're seeking to live in places, one, where they're not easily identified, and then two, where they have some kind of shelter from the elements. So yeah, those typically are not places where, where you know, where we really want people to live. And then um, the makeshift housing and everything, you know, it goes against all kinds of code, not just fire code, but building code and, and health and safety code. And there's so many, there's so many sort of problems that come along with it um, that we could, uh, we'll probably dive deeper into that, but yeah, for sure. And that was kind of where we we're going to go with the next um, question with, with the unhoused or homeless uh, they make makeshift camps under underpasses on the street and in vacant fields and empty warehouses and sometimes empty houses that they know no one's living in the house. Um, has the fire service changed the way that it responds to these types of fires? I know in the past certain cities had policies that if they knew a, a, sit, a building was vacant, they didn't go in it. But there was always that, how do you know it's vacant just because it's empty? So has new policies been developed? I think Oakley, you mentioned Oakland, Heather. I think, didn't they just have a fire the other day where it was in a vacant warehouse where homeless people were living? Um, yeah, Lisa, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, I'm, I'm not in Oakland anymore, but I can speak to Fremont. We've had a number of building, a number of fires in buildings that, um, that are, that are thought to be vacant, but end up with, uh, with a large number of people living in it. And the problem, the problem with that is one, we probably, whether we expect it or not, um, if you expect the building to be vacant, you can't really operate under that until you confirm it because the fire doesn't start from nothing, right? So if you know you have a building without any utilities and there's no known cause, you have to assume that there's somebody in there or there was somebody in there at some point. So even you know, obviously we're going to take greater precautions for a building that looks boarded up or, or vacant, but unfortunately we can't assume that they're, you know, that they're empty. So we will always do, um, as long as it's safe, we will always do some kind of, some kind of search, um, when it's safe to do so. But yeah, there's a, there's a tremendous number of fires in structures that are boarded up that are, that are now, uh, makeshift housing for, for the unsheltered population. Yeah, Heather, I agree. Um, we can't forget the, um, you know, there's historically in the fire service, the Worcester fire um, was actually, you know, long before homelessness was a huge issue in the United States. Um, but that was squatters in a building. And that's how that fire started. And we lost a number of firefighters over that tragedy. Um, I think that you nailed it, that we have to assume that there's someone in a building if a fire started in a building, whether it's presumed to be occupied or not. It's the level of risk that we're willing to take and um, really, you know, taking a good look at what the survivability profile is and getting things under control before we commit our people. Absolutely. That's huge, huge, right? You know, figuring how far advanced the fire is and whether if there is somebody in there, you know, what's the risk? So Heather, I know you're in Fremont now, which is a lot smaller than Oakland. So do you guys try to like identify where there's homeless encampments and such in your city or where the homeless might be squatting? Yeah, I think, I think uh, even in Oakland, we did that, right? Like as a battalion yeah. chief, we sort of had an understanding of where you're, of 
you know, the target hazards in your district, including homeless encampments and stuff. Um, and yeah, we definitely try to do that. We have target hazards. The problem is it's a moving target, right? Like you can't really stay on top of it. It's hard enough just doing business inspections on the businesses that are in business, but the constant turnover, it really, it really takes a larger, sort of a larger approach, right? As businesses close or if they're, if they're unoccupied for any portion of time, you sort of have to have eyes on it. And it, we just don't have the personnel to stay on top of it, unfortunately. And then I, you know, I'd say in California, like encampments along the roadways are a huge problem. And as I mentioned before, they don't, you know, unsheltered population doesn't want to be seen because they don't want to be bothered. Like none of us would want to be bothered. So you're going to try to tuck yourself away in a place that's, that's hidden. And usually that's in vegetation. And so then if there is a fire, it's more, it's a more dangerous spot for a fire to start in. So there, it's just a, you know, kind of a compounded problem. And, and, you know, I do want to mention, like, it's not just a fire problem, you know, everybody, I feel like everybody wants to make it a fire problem, because it is, but it's, it's a public health problem. It's a, you know, it's a community service problem. It's a building code problem. Like It's a, we've spent in this country, we've spent years trying to develop codes to keep people safe. And now to essentially turn a blind eye to, to code and enforcement and in these homeless situations. It, it's terrible. It's terrible for the people living there. It's terrible for firefighters and emergency responders because none of the safeties that you think are in place nice. that you can rely on are are in place. I agree. So we've kind of hit on it a little bit, but what are the risks associating with responding to homeless encampments, like the outside encampments? Heather, I mean, I'm, excuse me, Heidi, you kind of mentioned on it the um, confined space aspect if they're in the tunnels and such. But um, so we don't. Um, I want to touch something real quick on what Heather um, was talking about the with with codes and. um, And just the whole policing and how it becomes more of a public health issue than it is just a fire issue. I think it's important because that's where we're going to get our support to help deal with this, hopefully. Um, Colorado Springs has a pretty neat program that's run through their police department that has, uh, I believe, they're about a $6 million budget to try to manage their their homeless um, population to some extent. And I don't know how successful it is, but I do know that they offer some services to help get these people back into uh, either into shelters or into working environments so that they can get off the street. I have no idea what their success rate is, um, but they, but I think that, you know, when we talk about our safety, it, it isn't all fires and the extreme um, resource utilization of the police department on, on these situations is huge. Um, so then we have, like Heather said, along the roadways, people camping, which creates problems in traffic. Um, we have people cr- that are all along our riverbeds, which have made recreational areas dangerous for our citizens, as well as um, can cause sewage going into our waterways. Um, so it's really a it's really a huge problem. If we had somebody here from Seattle, their sewage is just everywhere on their streets, from what I've heard. Um, so we, it's a it's a big issue that all communities need to start 
addressing. Um, but as fire departments, we need to just recognize that all of those public health issues are could potentially be issues to us as well um, and and cause harm or illness to us, not just in the fire capacity. Thank, thank you, Heather. I'm, I'm Heidi. That's very important. I don't. I think a lot of times we just think of um, we hear about the fire department responding. And if you turn on the local news in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's mostly like yesterday. It was a different department talking about the homelessness and the encampment fires and such. But you're right; they never go into all the other hazards that the fire department members could face responding to um, even a simple EMS call or just a, because of you're right of the um, mental health uh, mental illness and such of the um, the campers and um, so kind of piggybacking on that question and you kind of mentioned it um Heidi so when when a fire department responds to an encampment fire are the police automatically dispatched due to for the safety or is it just kind of an out does it come in as an outside fire or does it come in I mean I get that there's a gamut of different types of outside fires from anything from a trash can to a car fire to an encampment fire and I'm sure some come in as encampment fires if they know the if the caller knows it's an encampment but if it if it comes in as an encampment fire, are the police automatically dispatched on a call, or or should I, they if they're not? It would be nice. Uh, I don't know that we always have the resources. It's I think it's going to be officers' discretion. I think most people in my organization would request PD. Um, but you know we're we're running pretty limited resources. So and we also don't have the same dispatch centers as police. So it. It, um, if you have a savvy dispatcher, they may have more information and ask for PD. Uh, but I think it's in our department, it's going to be officer dependent. So in, in Gainesville, when uh, when we had anything of that nature, they were uh, automatically dispatched out. If they had, um, so our, our encampment, um, they moved... Um, the entire population from a specific area to a house area. It was a, a work camp that, you know, it was a prison work camp that was, um, um, that they disassembled or moved the uh, prisoners off to somewhere else. So it was like uh, close to 50 acres that was just open and they moved everyone there or advised everyone to move there. So anytime that we went there, uh, police went with us. Um, anytime that, it was a fire. Police went with, with us. EMS, um, psychological calls. Um, so eventually, the department came up with a psych team from the health department that would would respond to uh, psych psychological emergencies with us. Also, you know, and they can't respond in the emergency time that we do, but they would eventually show up. So, anytime that we had that known area that we would be dispatched to, they would send the police because we just didn't know what we'd run into because all it would take is for one person to become irate. And then next thing you know, we're surrounded by, you know, uh, people who are not friendly. So that was the protection portion that, that Gainesville did for, for the uh, fire service or yeah. the city, the entire city. Yeah. So yeah, I know. I for Oakland, um, you know, the police 
there just wasn't an ability to send a police officer for every for every call like that. Oftentimes they they weren't there um, or maybe they were en route, but fire would get there first. And, you know, because of the sometimes uh, contentious nature between citizens and the police department, sometimes for for us, it was better if fire just went and handled it. But then again, you have to, you know, even even those parts of your district where the homeless gather, like you have to know the sort of the climate and the culture and, and the understanding that at any point the scene can become erratic or something that you don't expect. But I think if right. you, you know, if you know the, the people, then you sort of have an idea whether you can come in and put out their fire and there's no issue or if you might suspect that there's going to be an issue. So, you know, just like any other part of your of your district, the more, you know, the the better off you are. And then, you know, if you have to wait for police or not. That's an excellent point there, because we actually found out that that encampment almost had like a council. There was a person they considered the mayor. There was a person they they considered the enforcer. Um, There were people that were um, I won't call them informants, but. If something was going on and we need to know what was going on, we'd go straight to Mary or whoever it was, and we'd get the straight answer right away. You didn't have to beat around the bush or pull it out of them. They already knew us as friendly. Um, the um, we, we had a, a murder at one of the uh, encampments. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the stitches get stitches type thing. But as soon as we went to the person or the person that they call the mayor, it was like, hey, Rob, what happened? Okay. And they wouldn't necessarily talk to us in front of them. But so we would meet them a couple blocks down the road. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. And like you said, if you get to know the people um, and whatever their structure is that they have of of the hierarchy and, and all the other stuff, we knew them by name. We already knew majority of them birthdays, names, and, and um, what the ailments were because we ran on them so much. And uh, whenever there was a situation that went down, like I said, all we had to do was go to, it was like, I think it was five people that would give us straight answers pretty much every time. And it would be taken over. A situation would be taken care of because uh, we had uh, the, the Spice or the K2 uh, outbreak uh, we were smoking, and we had, I think it was 32 people that had to be transported after smoking that. Mm-hmm. So went to the one person, they go, hey, there is, you know, you already know it's, it's a Spicer K2. This is where they're getting it from. And, you know, we were able to shut that that problem down once we made contact with the, with the right person. And they just, you know, gave us the information that we needed. Otherwise, we were going to continue to have more patients. And stuff so but like she said make contact and you're you're making um partnerships inside of that community just like you would in the regular community yeah i agree with you on that um aspect ace but in some cities like um oakland there's so many different homeless encampments you would hope that the um individual engine companies would do that but as far as resources outside the fire department to help with that, Oakland just doesn't have, and correct me if I'm wrong, Heather, since you um, work there as well, I think Oakland just has proper resources to, to kind of do that. There's just, 
some of the larger cities just have so many encampments throughout the entire city. I know in Oakland, Heather, they had that big um, homeless encampment over there on Wood Street that was like 25, 30 blocks long. That pretty much was what Ace was talking about a minute ago with the hierarchy and such. And um, Yeah, definitely. The, that Wood Street encampment, there was definitely a hierarchy. I mean, they, at one point, I don't know if they still do, they had a Type 6 engine that they had gotten from somewhere, and they were attempting to really, you know, put out their own fire. So, you know, they were trying to not be a nuisance or a drain on the system. It's just, you know, when you have... Um, when you have some mental illness, you know, sometimes that's not something you can control despite having, you know, having a, a system in place to try to govern your, to try to govern your, your encampment. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when um, the general population, like, like I said, when you turn on the news and you see that there's an encampment fire, they don't understand. I think the, the whole gist of what could be occurring in encampment fires. I mean, we know that, they they may have been um, tapped in the streetlights for power. And so there's electrical hazards as well. So it's not just pretty much a regular tent that's on fire. That We think when we're going camping that we're camping in just a regular, you know, tent. But um, they use the uh, power, the um, street poles for power running extension cords. And that in itself yeah. creates a whole different fire hazard that's maybe difficult to spot to spot, especially at night. And then um, they could have like tampered with the fire hydrants. And then the tents aren't like I just mentioned a minute ago. They're not just your your normal tent. Those tent they they're like if you ever like drive by one, the tents are like a lot larger than just your simple camping tent and consists of like many different materials. Like they have pallets and and everything else around these tents that often aren't even noticeable and what's inside the tents. I mean, there's, there could be cooking, there could be propane to keep them warm. There's a gamut of things that um, could be in these tents. So in some regards, responding to just your average tent, even just on your, I mean, there's a lot of homeless encampments that we know of that are just on the street, like under on, on the street, under an underpass or just on the sidewalk. And it's like almost the same thing. If you think about that tent, you almost have to think of it as a room and contents or a dumpster fire on tent, not just a tent that we think of that we're going to go when we go camping. Yeah, Lisa, that's, it's super important, right? That, um, that young firefighters know this young company officers know this, that, you, you know, in any, in any residence, you, you should always expect the unexpected, but certainly in a building that looks like it's boarded up or you, you, or you expect squatters, certainly in an RV or a encampment, you have no idea the hazards, propane cylinders, uh, extension cords, you know, power coming from someplace that you don't expect. Um, I've seen it where they, you know, where they take the power from the sidewalk or, um, yeah. And then right, you're right. Like you're cooking in your living space, right? In, in a house, there's a separation. There's, you know, that we have, we have sheetrock and you, your cabinets have to be a certain distance from your stovetop and your, you know, your heating elements have to be a certain distance from your, from your furnishings. But, but in, um, in tents or in makeshift dwellings, those, you know, those codes aren't there there and people probably aren't even cognizant of it. I, I did have a, 
a member that worked for the city one time asked me if there were any space heaters that were approved for use in cars because of homeless people living in cars and needing heat. And I was like, no, because it's just not safe to be living in your car and operating a heater in your car. Like, And we shouldn't feel okay with people having to live in their cars. We have to find a better way because that's, that's hazardous for, for the occupants and it's hazardous for us. Right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that we need to look at too, is that those um, particularly in the encampment encampments, when we talk about shelter, sheltered, Homeless people, it's a, a different, little different subject because they can't bring stuff with them. But um, in these in these encampments or or just even individual street dwellings, there's also animals that we have to consider, and um, potentially there could be an entire family with children. So, um, and then you know we keep bringing into the substance abuse and the mental illness of some of these people. We have to remember that. You know, there is also a large portion of these people that aren't using substances and and aren't mentally ill, um, but are just really in a bad situation. And it's hard for us to separate that because typically when we have a negative reaction, it's with someone who's under substance abuse or has a mental illness. And so we go into these events um, with less uh, empathy maybe than we would normally um in an unsheltered situation. Um, a lot of the reasons that people remain unsheltered versus sheltered and homeless is because they are on drugs and they can't use their drugs in their shelters. But other reasons for that would be that they can't bring their belongings with them into a shelter and they're afraid their belongings will get stolen or get thrown away. And while we may look at their belongings and think that there's not much value to them, to someone where that's all they have, those are valuable belongings. So when we're responding to these people and looking at, you know, kind of looking at it from a different angle, um, it's it it becomes a much more complex situation than just putting out their house and the and they probably will have burns, significant burns, trying to put out their their shift house as well um, and then won't want to leave because the police will, or, will throw their things away or they'll get stolen so there's a, there's an entire dynamic about responding to um, particularly the unsheltered homeless um, that we've been talking about so much that we need to educate our firefighters and our um, in our community about and there can be a nuisance to some people but there's there's a whole dynamic behind it. Heidi, that made, you made a good point about it is somebody's house and the compassion that you need, um, that we need to instill in our firefighters and in our members in general, that that's their house. That's all they have. That's all they know. And it's like if our house caught on fire and the fire department would respond, they would probably give you resources of what to do and such and have compassion. And I think because in some cities they go to so many encampment fires there could be kind of a sense of what well, was just a tent that caught on fire. No big deal. So I agree with you, Heather. I mean, I'm Heidi. There does need to be some possible training in that aspect of this. And one of the big things that one of the big things that they are concerned about is their identification or their security card or their work permits. 
um, that those might be in that burning situation. And it takes them so long. It's so difficult when you don't have a physical address to get those things reissued to you. So, um, you know, there are people that are trying to get out of their situation um, and, and may, so it may be a little more concerning for them. We know it goes on both ends of the spectrum, right? I think um, we've all seen all, all, all ends of the spectrum on that one. Yeah, and there's some people, like you mentioned, that want to be homeless, that don't want to be in the in the shelters because they can't use their drugs, they can't do whatever. And then there's some people that have just unfortunately fell on hard times. They've lost their job and they got evicted or something and they have nowhere to go. So there's like, when we think of homeless, we kind of need to think of the gamut of who who of who's homeless because not everybody homeless wants to be homeless. Some want to be homeless and some don't. They just fell on hard times and they're trying to get their life back together to go. So as fire department professionals, we need to make sure that um, we're instilling in our, our members, the compassion, even though uh, they might go to the same person or the same encampment numerous times, we need to instill in a compassion to show what the individuals they're responding to. And I think it comes back to knowing what our resources are in our cities, right? I In my department, we cover three different counties and I think 10 different cities. So it's it's pretty complex um, to figure out the resources of the places that you are. Um, but when you're in a big city department or in just covering one county, it might be a little bit easier to figure that out um, so that you can help those people. I know that in Colorado Springs, one of the homeless people interviewed in a recent story mentioned that they she would rather stay outside because they kick them out of the shelter at five in the morning and that's the coldest time of the day whether it's whether it's raining snowing or whatnot and so then they're going from a nice warm place to to a place now where they're cold and they have probably lost some of their belongings that they were using to to make their makeshift home and so and now they're just out in the cold um which then has a can have a trickle down effect on us whether we're treating true hypothermia on these calls or if we are actually or if we're having people that are using the system to get to a warmer spot so it it has we this is such a huge community thing and knowing the resources if that person knew well i can go straight from the from the shelter to the soup kitchen and stay warm until it warms up. That's what they would do. But they, there's not that that link between resources. So I think the fire department has the opportunity to to be to at least be able to spread that information when we're responding to these calls. Heidi, you just made an excellent point. I think that a lot of times, like I've mentioned a few times now, we turn on the news, we see X, Y, and Z fire department talking about the homeless and how the homeless encampments causing cars to catch on fire and this and that. And so it's, it's instilling in kind of the public in my mind that it's the fire department just responding to these homeless things. And there's all these homeless people and there's really nothing that's occurring or going. And you just made a point that you have to understand the resources that are available within your city and train your firefighters on the resources to help the homeless. So like you just mentioned, when they, they make them leave at five o'clock in the morning when it's cold. Um, and the, I mean, cities need to work together or the with other 
like public works, the police department or community medicine or the fire department or local um, Red Cross or whoever we're going to talk about to implement programs and services that are going to help individuals. And how you mentioned it, the families, there's a lot of families that are homeless and to help them move out of the homelessness. How can we do it? I know Oakland, um, they implemented, and correct me if I'm wrong, Heather, the tiny homes program. Where they had the tiny homes and tried to put individuals in the tiny homes to get them um, out of uh, off the streets. But we need to identify future funding and resources. And it's, it's, I mean, and I think we all could agree that homelessness is, is increasing. And it's, it's not only a problem within the fire service, but it's a problem within the communities as well. I mean, we see a lot of like people saying that San Francisco, I'm going to use them as an example, is not safe because there's homeless people. Um, there's homeless people in every city you go to, whether it's San Francisco. I mean, there's homeless people in Wanda Creek. There's homeless people anywhere you go. It's just how they're being perceived by the people that live in the community. Ace, did you have something to add? So um, in the uh, community paramedic, the community paramedic, paramedicine program. So when we would go on calls, uh, we had. A, uh, You're breaking up. I think we lost him. So. Heather, Oakland doesn't have community paramedicine, but they have the MAC, was it called macro program? Yeah, that's correct. They had the, the macro program was meant to deal with, um, you know, people who didn't necessarily need PD, but didn't really need an ambulance either. So sort of for, you know, for mental health issues, not specifically for homelessness, but we know there's, a, there's an overlap. So that was sort of an attempt to, um, to to stop the police from going to calls that they didn't need to go to, um, where people did not need a police presence, um, but also they didn't need an ambulance either. Um, I think across the board, a lot of communities are looking at alternative care models and what that looks like to best serve, you know, to best serve the community because we can't we can't continue to put people in hospitals that don't need to go to the hospital. And we can't tie up resources on people that don't need them. But there is obviously a need for resources for many people, and we're not getting them the resources they need. So I think globally, um, you know, as communities, we need to really look at this at this approach and see how we can deliver the the support, as Heidi mentioned, like these services that we have. How can we get it to the people that need it? And how can we make sure that, you know, we don't have people abusing the system or or we're we're providing a a path for them that they don't necessarily need. And so that was the, that's the attempt of the macro program. Um, I don't, I think it's been successful, but I don't know. I don't have the data on that. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that other agencies are looking at things like community paramedicine, um, uh, mobile care units with nurses, um, just a whole bunch of different, um, different telehealth is a big one you know, to get somebody on the on the phone with a doctor and maybe they don't need to be transported. Uh, but for each community and even communities within the community, those needs are different and it needs to be kind of a multi-tiered, multifaceted approach to it. And and you both... And the fire department, go ahead, Heidi. 
Well, I agree with you, Heather. I think that, and it's not just community paramedics. It's not just um, the mobile health. Sometimes it's community clinics. It's, it's, um, there's, there's such a, there's a great deal of things that we can do, but we all have to, we have to figure out these resources as a community. I think that in in a fire department, maybe like Oakland, where their call volume doesn't um, necessarily warrant as much community outreach as in some other areas. Um, We have a pretty busy department, but not comparatively so. And I think that we can do better is in this community outreach of, of helping these, you know, bridge this gap between all of these entities so that we have are able to share the resources for people that want to use them. There are people that don't want to use them. We, we know that, but, um, but what a great place for the fire department to try and be a conduit, especially when you're looking at, um, you know, how are we supporting our, our fire department and is the community going to support the fire department if the fire department isn't visible in supporting the community other than just, running buyers that are that make the news because that's not what we do so um community yeah community paramedicine is something that your fire department can do to take some of the workload off of your 911 response teams um and in following up with patients that are chronic um have chronic illnesses that may use the ambulance and use the emergency rooms for their treatments instead of getting those treatments at home um they're able to go out and do uh, clinics or or see people in these encampments or in shelters. Um, you know, one of the things, unfortunately, we didn't talk much about sheltered homeless people, Lisa, but sheltered homeless people are having, are struggling and people are struggling to get into the shelters in Denver because of the large influx of immigrants that are being sent to Denver and um, and taking some of those shelter spaces up. Now it's, you know, they should as well, they have the right for those as well. But unfortunately, when we're on a limited resource, it puts a, it, it puts a kibosh on the, on the, uh, your typical chronic homeless person. And you both just make a good point about getting the re getting the resources, um, letting the, the community, the unhoused, unsheltered know what resources are available. So are we, do we currently train our firefighters in this, that when they go to an encampment fire or they go to just, I'm talking about the line firefighters and, and company officers, are they aware of what resources are available so that they could educate them? Maybe even like there's the pamphlets of after the fire handout after the fire. And we, we all know that, like we mentioned earlier, that there are just some people that just want to be homeless. They don't want the responsibility of, what comes with possibly having a house apartment or whatever. But then, as I mentioned earlier, there's those that fell on hard times that do want the resources. So is it something that we do, or is it something that we should consider doing to train our firefighters? They're the first line that's, I mean, we often talk, when we talk about community service, we often talk about the first, make the positive impression, the fire department is the first impression that the community is going to have at the fire department. So do we educate and train our firefighters to let them know what resources are available? Or should we be doing that? I I can say that I think we should. Do we do a good job? No, I think we do a terrible job of that. Um, I think that's a moving target because the, you know, it changes so much. And uh, Chief, you know, fire department's really reactive instead of proactive in a lot of ways. Um, but I think this is something that that we should work on getting ahead of and, you know, and trying to, Trying to, as Heidi said, like be a better resource 
community in that way. Yeah. And we know how they move. I mean, we know that encampments, if they get abated from one area, they move to another area. So it, it, like you just mentioned, Harry, some or Heather, some of them aren't like in the same area all the time. So you might respond one day to a homeless encampment and public works or police, whoever came out and they abated it. So it's no longer there. But so you can't reach those people. But I think the times that we have contact with the homeless or unhoused, it, it gives us the opportunity to help possibly. I mean, as we've mentioned numerous times throughout the show so far, it's it's a problem. The homeless unhoused is a problem. Um, getting into shelter is a problem. And it's not just the fire department's problem. It's not just the police department's problem. It's a, it's a citywide, a nationwide pro- problem that nobody seems to be able to like solve at this point in time because the homeless population just continues to grow. So I'm just thinking if we did educate our, our members on how the what resources are available, that maybe the ones that really were receptive and wanted the help would seek the help. Ace, did you have something to say? Nope, nope, I'm, I'm listening. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. I'm just getting in the house. No, so I know that um, a lot of cities, um, their code enforcement will go out and try to identify where the homeless encampments are and such. Um, they could also help with this problem. As I just mentioned, it's not just the fire department's problem. And I think that when we hear about homeless encampments and homeless uh, RVs, as Heather mentioned, and car fires and such. I think the public just thinks that that's the problem. It's the problem is they're starting, these fires are occurring and such. And um, the problem's a lot bigger than just the encampment fires, as we mentioned. Heidi, you brought up the, the topic of um, the health risks that firefighters face when they go to these encampment fires and these RV fires and such. So, I mean, I think it's, is that included or um, part of curriculum now in the, in the training division that we in, teach our firefighters the hazards that are associated with the encampment fires? How we mentioned before the taking the power off the streetlights and that a tent is pretty much a room and contents fire with a kitchen in it. I know we've done some training um, because of uh, some of the incident, incidents that have occurred in Colorado Springs where they've had firefighters injured, uh, that that has spurred some discussion within the department, not just on the EMS side, but also on the fire response side. Um, you know, so looking at getting police back up, uh, looking for electrical, different electrical hazards, um, the propane tanks, like Heather mentioned, um, that's huge, or other types of incendiary devices. Um, that they might be just starting fires with. Um, and then being conscious of who you might be. The the goal would be to, if you were there for a medical call, would be to get that person to try to come out of the camp with you so you can evaluate them without all of the extraneous goings on um, around you. The problem, again, was is with their, their belongings. Is, and so when it's nice when the police are there because they can – we can talk them into coming with us while the police watch their belongings. Um, and, and the goal there would be to hopefully do a treat and release um, and maybe have a community paramedic uh, to follow up with them. Um, and, you know, 
I can I can speak to that sometimes those people don't care when they're not in the big camps, they're in their own um, small camps. They may actually want you and, and, and fake their injury. Um, my husband's department just went on a technical rescue of a homeless person that had built their house. Uh, it built a tree house up in an open space area, but, you know, high up on a, on a hill where they actually had to uh, lower him through through a technical rescue, lower him to the ground and then carry him all the way out, took him to the hospital. And before the medics had left, they the um, guy walked off the ho- hospital bed and said, thanks for the ride, guys, and thanks for the ride to town. So th- those when that happens, that is so dejected for the rest, for the crews who worked hard to try and help this person, um, and but and the the safety the risks that they went through in in this particular call um were just it's what we do for people so um trying to get people trained to be able to hopefully intervene with these people to help them help themselves i think we just keep going back to that um and even offering them do you is that really do you, do you just want to ride to the hospital cuz we'll get you a cab um, we have paid for bus tickets and things um, before just to just to help the person not utilize our system because our system is being overused by that. And Ace, you were kind of uh, alluding to that earlier before we lost you about the uh, community paramedicine program and what, how that could help with the um, EMS responses. Right. So in in the um... We had um, uh, the community pyramid medicine program. We had a, uh, a coordinator that came in, and they went out and they went out along with the health department, and then they would do um, assessments, and they were assessing what were needs, what were uh, wants, and what were um, the out and out. Uh, necessities that they needed so in the uh, medical portion of it um because you know they weren't seeing a doctor on a regular basis um they partnered with the uh the school of medicine um for some of the uh residents um to come and spend some some volunteer time so in the the medical um, uh, doctoral program, they have to do X amount of um, uh, community hours. So, what was what better place to come than to out and help us um, assess these patients or the um, people in the encampments and stuff? So, they found out because the the location of the uh, encampment um, that the city built for them was, you know, it was a little ways out of town, not, not completely out of town, nothing that you couldn't walk or ride a bike, but some people. We lost you again. Always when he's about to drop us a brilliant line, we lose him. We lose him. (laughs) Back with us, Ace? No. Uh Oh, okay. I guess I'm back now. Okay. Okay. So they assessed that they needed bus passes, and uh, they got that established. So that program um, helped, you know, like I said, with the other partners, assess what was needed and got those resources to them. 
And of course, you know, if you give them free passes, then other people go are like, well, if you give the homeless free passes, I'm paying taxes. I think I need a free pass also. So what what was the what's the balance? That's what we're getting. What is the balance when you're trying to get resources to this situation? How are we going to balance it between the ones who are paying taxes? And um, who said that I should be getting X, Y, Z for free and these people who are not paying taxes and who are getting things for free. So it's it's one thing after another. And and I think yeah. that's what makes this problem so hard is just that, that, you know, people aren't willing to allocate the resources and the funds like it's needed. Because of that, because, you know, people say, well, I can't build that. So how can they get to build that? Or I can't live like that. How can they get to that? I can't have a fire in my front yard. How can they get to have a fire in their front yard? So there's there's so many issues in that regard um, that just makes the problem so much more difficult. You're right. It's it's just um, and as the colder months come, I think that unfortunately we'll see more fires as individuals try, especially in the colder climates, trying to keep warm that are um, unhoused. So I know that we've talked about um, departments can't do it alone and we need um, other agencies to help out and such. And I've I've mentioned numerous times that the fire department's the first, a lot, the first interaction that a lot of these individuals will have and such. But I know the um, Sacramento fire just, um, came up with a, a plan and it's um, they have like an incident management team and it's led by Sacramento fire. And it's kind of set up as the same way as emergency response structures used in a disaster situation. And what it does is um, the Sacramento fire department is now officially in charge of the city's homeless response. There's an assistant chief that's leading the newly established incident management team which follows the same emergency response structure using disaster situations like wildfires and severe storms. Um, it was announced at the State of the City event last Wednesday, I believe. Um, the mayor called the new approach an all hazards on all hands on deck response to the homeless crisis. Uh, the assistant chief's tasked with bringing together various departments, agencies, and outside providers, including the police department, the three one one customer city service, city and county. So that we can help. Um, and then they, he was quoted saying we can help the homelessness and have a clearer and safer city. That's what we're going to do this together. And then they asked how he planned on implementing this. It was kind of like in the planning stages right now. So that said, um, we can go on the scene of a medical aid. And if that person doesn't necessarily need to go to the hospital, an ambulance, maybe they need a medication refill. We can use an iPad, call a doctor in real time, have that doctor send over the prescription or give us orders on scene for us to treat and release on scene and we can move on to the next call. So we're not taking um, resources out of service. And they believe that this is, will. Um, there's a lot of hope in making these changes that will reduce the number of non-emergency 911 calls, which we've already talked about. So it sounds like this um, is brand new, a brand new program that the fire department's gonna kind of be in charge of and we realize that um, a lot of cities probably are understaffed right now. If we look on any kind of website or any kind of social media, everybody's hiring throughout 
pretty much the United States for firefighters because everyone's so understaffed. So if this program was a success, do you think that other cities would want to implement something like this where they could um, have just one person in charge of this and, and help the homelessness or... I mean, we don't have a lot of information on it because it just started. So obviously there's no um, hardcore data on it, but it sounds like um, it's almost, it's to get the in, the crews back in service because I get their increase in calls and that in the city has been so drastic that the resources are on homeless encampments and homeless I think it's a great idea. I mean, I think it's a great idea to, to try something new and out of the box. And I think a lot of eyes are going to be on it. Um, cities throughout this country and fire departments throughout this country are all struggling with the same issue. So I think the fact that they're trying something different and they're trying something, I, I give them tremendous accolades. Um, we'll be watching to see how it goes to see if it's something, you know, that we may do in the future. Um, because I think at this point, it's it's almost like nothing we've done is really working so let's try something else exactly it's nothing it, it the homeless or unhoused population just keeps growing and departments just keep talking about pretty much what to do and like a um ace and heidi have um mentioned the community health or the community paramedicine programs which we're going to do a whole nother show on um but that would take away um some of the call volume that the engines and uh, medics would be going on to um, alleviate the call volume to the firefighters and release the um, the apparatus to respond to other type of calls. So I agree with you, Heather. It, it's it's an innovative idea. Um, what departments are doing now, or cities, pretty much cities are doing now, it doesn't seem to be alleviating the problem. I mean, you could Google homelessness and in the state of California or any state probably in the United States. And you're just going to see a, a maraud of issues and problems. And the majority of ones that the, are on the firefighter websites are the response of their encampments and um, EMS calls. So I think, in my opinion, fire departments need to kind of think a little bit broader of the homeless problem. It's not just encampment fires, car fires, and mental health issues that a lot of the community paramedicine will alleviate. It, it's a problem that needs to be addressed with all agencies helping each other in some kind of, um, and we've talked about it, educating the first responders on giving them information and, and getting, trying to alleviate it. But we also need affordable housing and somewhere that the homeless can go. So we could sit here and talk about all these programs we want, but if we don't have affordable housing within the cities that they're in, because a lot of them might not want to live leave the city that they're in, they're probably not going to want to, become unhomeless, if that's even a word. The bottom line, um, kind of to summarize what you just said, the bottom line is that you, we are community servants and we are public servants. And whether we, whatever our opinion is of these unhoused um, homeless individuals, um, we are servants to them as well. And we have the obligation to 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 figure something out for these people, um, not just us. It's not just us alone, but we can't turn our back um, on any member of our community. That's not what we took the oath to to serve for. 
And it, it's a hard one to get your head wrapped around sometimes with our egos, but that that is in fact we need to serve all of the community and we need to be a part of the discussion. And I'm very excited to see maybe we can have Sacramento on um, another show in the spring when they get things up and running. I think that's an amazing program. I'm looking forward to following that. I think it just started because this is dated 2023, unless it's printed from a previous year, but yeah, I I could reach out to them and we can, um, in the spring after it's been, you know, maybe six months or something and see how their program is going and Heidi you just made an excellent point that the homeless are part of our community and when we take an oath we take an oath to serve all members of our community so we need to do it with you know integrity and compassion and I get that a lot of times we're going on the same person numerous times and they don't really probably it's not an emergency in our mind but it's an emergency in their mind so it's a chance for us to educate that individual what a, a true emergency is so that they're not calling 911. And like I mentioned, um, we we're going to do a program or a show on um, community paramedicine. And I think that'll help alleviate some of the calls that go directly to 911 that are taking our resources that aren't true 911 emergencies. But a lot of the, it's the education, educating the members what a true 911 call is, because a lot of people don't, to them, it's an it's emergency. And that's why they're calling 911. So we're just about out of time. Um, so I want to thank each of my guests for being a part of this radio show and, 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 uh, talking about a topic that's pretty controversial in the fire service and in communities in general. I appreciate your guys' honesty and your willingness to be on the show. Um, I want to thank fire engineering again. Thank you to all the listeners and members of the women in fire and remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and to check out our website, women in fire dark. Dot org. And again, thank you to my guests. And that's all. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, Explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's Gift Center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more.